Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from Northeast Iowa, McGregor to be specific. I am fortunate to be with my family, spending a little bit of time back in the Midwest where my wife and I grew up and met. And so we'll be recording several episodes of the Rays podcast from uh, the home office here. I am thrilled to welcome Mike Wallace, who's the AVP for Development at Santa Clara University, to the show. Uh, Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here today. So if you're all wondering, did we drive the motor home to get to Iowa? The answer is yes. And by yes, I mean, my wife drove all but roughly seven miles. She doesn't usually let me drive, as many of our listeners have come to learn. Uh, So we do have our motor home here. And I was just asking Mike, we're recording this on July 1st. It is the new fiscal year. I said, Happy New Year. What are you going to do to to celebrate? And he told me that he and his family are. We're renting an RV. We're we're following Brent's uh, (laughs) example here and uh, flying to Vegas, renting an RV. We're going to hit up some national parks. We're going to hit up uh, Zion, then Bryce, and then hit the south rim of the Grand Canyon. So that's going to be a fun week. I love it. I can't wait to hear more. Uh, RV life is not uh, for the faint of heart, but once you get good at it, it's uh, it's a pretty liberating experience. So we'll have to recap that. But today we want to dive into uh, your career path. Really, um, one of the most California-centric guests that we've had. You've worked the coast, uh, you've grown up the coast, and um, and I really want to dive into that journey. Let's start by going back to your junior year of high school at Notre Dame High School in Sherman Oaks. Who was Mike Wallace at that time? And did you know you wanted to be an advancement leader? Oh gosh, I don't even think I knew what advancement was at that time. Um, Tell me a little bit about your own decision to attend UC San Diego um, when you think about where you were that junior, senior year of high school. Yeah. So grew up in LA. I knew I wanted to leave home a little bit um, and was looking at a few different options. I I think probably my top two choices were University of Notre Dame and, and UC San Diego. Uh, I knew I wanted to run in college as I ran cross country and track in high school and was looking to continue that. So um, in the end, it, it came down to, I got waitlisted at Notre Dame, went out and met with the coach and, um, and, and thought about that. But in the end, you know, I, I, I was thrilled with my decision to go to UC San Diego and you can't beat running on the cliffs of La Jolla in January without a shirt on. You're not doing that in South Bend, I I guarantee you. That is for sure. And after having spent the last year traveling the entire country and when people ask us, hey, what were some of your favorite places or where do we need to go? I mean, I've said this for a long time, but San Diego is an amazing place. Uh, It really is just an incredible lifestyle and a great place, I'm sure, to have attended college. And it sounds like you were able to blend that uh, continued interest in athletics uh, in addition to the academic program there. Yeah, that's great. No, it's, it's you know, I, I look at my experience as I talk to prospective students that are looking at Santa Clara. You know, I went to a big pu- private school. I been, went to a big public school. Um, you know, I've worked at Stanford, uh, which is, you know, a medium-sized uh, private school. And now at Santa Clara, and I look at the differences. I can describe the differences. And I think that's really helpful for students to think about what, what they're getting into. And, you know, I always, I always wonder what goes into a 17, 18 year old's mind on when they, 
make that decision of where they're going to go for the next four years. Um, you know, so many different factors can play a role, but um, you really have to figure out what, what you think is the right program for you. And I think that's an important decision for, for a, a family to make as they're looking at where that student's going to go to for the next four years. And you focused on the sciences uh, in your undergrad studies. Um, great entry point into advancement. Um, what was your intention as you were going down that path? Yeah, so I was I was pre med. I was, you know, thinking that's where I was going to go. I I studied for the MCATs, took the MCATs, realized I was burned out from that process, and um, figured I, I wanted to do something different. So I was working in an immunology, an immunology lab at Scripps Research Institute right next to UC San Diego, enjoyed the research, probably, you know, thought about, do I want to get my PhD? Do I want to become a professor? Really enjoyed teaching an upper division or being a teaching assistant, in an upper division nutrition course through at UC San Diego, thought maybe the professor route might be of interest. Um, but in the end, you know, I, I knew that, you know, working at a big school, research was going to drive most professors. And, you know, while I enjoyed the research, it wasn't necessarily my, my passion. I knew my passion would have been more around the teaching side of things. Um, and probably didn't know some of the, you know, there's schools that do a better balance of that teacher scholar method than maybe some of the big publics. So um, who knows that maybe that would have changed, but um, was following my running, I uh, ran through UC San Diego for four years, uh, ran cross country and track, and then had an opportunity after, you know, a couple of years after graduating to come up and run on a post-collegiate track and field team that trained at Stanford. Um, so followed that dream, knowing that I only had a few years left of, of running in me at a, at a high level and um, then figured I had to support my running habit with a real job. So, you know, got myself in that started off, got myself in a, a sales position in, in the Bay area. And then that company went under after nine 11. And I, then at that point I said, well, if I can get it Stanford, um, then that would be set, would be conducive for my lifestyle. Cause then after practice, after work, I could go across the street to the track and, wow. and train with my team. So I, I did not know that part of your journey. Uh, can I just ask favorite running memory when you think about all the races and, and, and different experiences do one or two stand out as being just the best memories? Yeah, no, I'll give you a high point and a low point. I would say Fair um, enough. This, so the high point, certainly on, on the Nike farm team, I, I, one, one season I realized that I was anemic and, you know, so my coaches had to dial back my training um, most of the time I was probably on that team. I was overtraining as I was training with, you know, Olymp like Olympic trials, caliber athletes. And, you know, some of our teammates would make the Olympic teams. Um, and so I was always probably training over my head, but by dialing things back, I remember I got the chance to run my first race back. And in that first race back, you know, slightly undertrained, ran a huge personal best. And so that, that was kind of a big rewarding. I went from like, the first lap in the race, I think I was dead last in 30th and I, you know, down the stretch was, you know, you know, just off the leader and in, in second or third in, in that race. So it was pretty, that was a fun experience. Probably the low point, but also definitely a memory was uh, training for my first marathon and never have trained as hard for one single race uh, was running Chicago marathon with my friend 
And, um, you know, we were on pace running about 520 minute mile pace for 18 miles or so. And then the wheels started to come off. Um, and by the mile 20, when the first aid person saw me, she knew I was in bad shape and she was trying to convince me to stop at that point. And, um, so I ended up stopping, had to get, you know, uh, escorted to the finish line in an ambulance, which, you know, wasn't fun, but, uh, and then I got out afterwards after the medical tent, after an hour, trying to figure out how to, you know, find my family and get home. And so th that was definitely one of the low points of, but, you know, certainly, you know, I did several marathons after that, and that was a motivation to try to figure out that race a little bit better. I appreciate the, uh, the, uh, walk down memory lane. Cause I'm, I, I know that's not a good one. I'll say that I did do the Boston Marathon in 2015, and there's a decent chance that even with your medical timeout and time spent in the ambulance that you still uh, beat me. So for whatever that's worth. Um, Boston so was a great the, memory as well. So when I did Boston, yeah. uh, even though I didn't run super fast at that course, just the whole experience is one that every true runner should try to experience. So the original catalyst to find the more kind of steady job. I mean, I guess you probably were in sales um, combination of like dot-com boom, dot-com bust, and then 9-11. Um, so that had to be a pretty, uh, on a variety of fronts, sort of emotional experience. But um, what, I guess you showed up at Stanford um, as that, you know, my understanding is about as junior level as it gets in the development shop. I mean, what was that like initially? Um, and uh, just take me back to maybe those first few weeks or months um, as you started to, to settle into what is obviously one of the most impressive fundraising operations in the world. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I didn't realize at that time how hard it is to get your foot in the door into a development position without prior development experience. And so I was being as creative as I can, getting my resume on every person's desk, you know, um, and, uh, at, at some point, finally, I had a conversation with someone in HR and she said, you know, you just don't have enough experience. Uh, but if, you know, go look and work at a, a small nonprofit, get some fundraising experience and reapply in a few years. Or she said, you might look at, you know, coming into more of an administrative role. We don't generally, you know, it's not a normal path that people take because we tend to hire more, you know, lifetime administrative assistants, but certainly that'll give you an opportunity to kind of learn the field from the bottom up, get a sense of how our database works, um, you know, understand the, the intricacies of, of, of the process. And I was fortunate enough to work with, uh, get hired to support two fundraisers in the class giving, annual giving area. And, and they really looked to kind of mentor me as they knew that I wanted to become a frontline fundraiser at some point. So it, things just were fortunate. And then, you know, a few years after, you know, I started or a couple of years after I started, then an opportunity opened up to get some management experience and help manage the administrative support team that supported the 14 reunion classes and the 11 class giving officers that Stanford had um, and kind of help with the project management of all of those different campaigns. And so um, I knew that that was a step away from my goal of, of being a frontline fundraiser, but it gave me that management experience, which can be hard for people in the development field to get at some point, which I think then I was able to leverage. So then 
Finally, I was able to manage the 10th reunion class at Stanford, get that frontline fundraising experience, um, and then combined it with my management experience. And that kind of parlayed in my next opportunity to come over to Santa Clara at some point. So you're at Stanford during the mid 2000s, which was really the birth of the social uh, network platforms. I mean, Facebook was obviously growing in the Bay Area at that time. LinkedIn uh, had emerged out of uh, Reed Hoffman as a Stanford alumnus. Uh, Twitter was founded up the road. I mean, so there's sort of this growing, but it was still very early, right? It was before those companies had gone public and, and maybe um, just take me back to, to what it was like having gone through personally that dot-com boom. Did you start to feel the, the boom and bust, but then now sort of being right there in the, in the Silicon Valley with so many of your alumni, I'm sure with those class reunion campaigns, joining um, some of these startups pretty early on. Did you feel that at the time or is it more as you look back in, in hindsight? No, you could tell. I, I remember setting up my first Facebook account and trying to figure out how do I manage this as a work tool and a social and a personal tool at the same time. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, everyone needs to continue to think about. Um, you know, I was a little hesitant to set up that account at first, but I was like, I realized the benefit that it had into my career and, and that, you know, this was a, an essential piece of that. So, um, but it was also, you know, working at Stanford, Stanford has an amazing alumni base that's full of entrepreneurs, right? And that's really what sets that school apart in so many different ways. And so that entrepreneurial spirit comes out in so many ways. So as you're speaking with alums, you get that sense. So you can feed off of that. Um, you know, I managed the 10th reunion. And I tell the story every once in a while. It wasn't, it wasn't uncommon that a 10th reunion alum who's 31 years old is asking me, how, how do I get onto the board of trustees at Stanford? You know, and that's not a question that you usually hear from that age range um, too often, but that's kind of the entrepreneurial spirit that you get at a school like Stanford, for sure. Now, even the way that you describe the structure, there being sort of two class giving officers with you as a development assistant or associate supporting that work. I mean, there really is an army uh, of people that are, are laser focused on uh, as much sort of I'm sure personalized fundraising, but also volunteer management to drive uh, those kinds of outcomes. And let's also be honest, there's so much affluence that what would be considered, I'm sure a mid-level or, or lower level prospect at Stanford could be a top of pyramid prospect at other institutions. So I'm curious if you had any um, moments where that uh, maybe it's with the folks that were 31 asking to be on the trustees, where did it just change your perspective on wealth or the potential for philanthropy earlier on in someone's career? Yeah. You know, Stanford is a machine and what they do. And that's, that's a, a term that they use. You hear that in their athletics, the Stanford machine, but really around their fundraising as well. I mean, they do it so well. Um, and as you think about, you become very specialized in your field. And I, you know, as you talked about a, a very focused team and the great thing was I had mentors that allowed me to kind of handle and work closely with their participation. Uh, like they focused on their special gifts committee and I was able to kind of over time take on a lot of the participation campaigns and work directly with those volunteers. Um, so that kind of grew over time, but you, you, you certainly had that sense of, you know, being able to make that difference, you know, work with alums that were passionate, 
Um, and it's, it's, you know, you could just see the impact that alumni had from their experience at Stanford, how they wanted to repay that. And I think, you know, it, that was the first question that I had to myself when I left, when I was considering leaving Stanford, because I, I didn't necessarily imagine myself leaving there when I did. But I said, you know, as I considered Santa Clara, are Santa Clara alums going to be as passionate about Santa Clara as Stanford alums are as passionate about Stanford? And fortunately, the answer was yes about that. And, and that made the transition a whole lot easier. Well, I'd love to hear more about it because it's one thing to sort of take an entry level job to help subsidize your running habit. Uh, it's another thing to decide that you really want to build your career in this world of advancement. And as you approach 14 years at Santa Clara in a sector where turnover is often talked about and, and in a region where there's no shortage of demand for development talent, it's rare for somebody to spend as much time as you have and have the opportunity to grow um, at an institution like Santa Clara. So you, you came to that conclusion that there was that latent potential and passion in the community. It's obviously a very, it's a different mission. It's got a different purpose and positioning. Um, but you started, my understanding is in the Santa Clara Fund uh, and obviously have now emerged as uh, the leader of the development organization. Just tell me a little bit about um, even when you got there, right, in sort of the depths of the financial crisis, and maybe the Bay Area was um, buffered somewhat, but but I would imagine, you know, that was such a different context than sort of where we sit today with uh, wealth creation and asset values and savings rate uh, kind of all having skyrocketed, um, you know, throughout the pandemic. So I'd just be curious to kind of get your reflection on uh, your impressions early on and where you sit today. Yeah, you know, Initially, when I thought, you know, when I spoke with one of my mentors at Stanford about the opportunity to come to Santa Clara, he said, you know, if you want to be a major gift officer, stay at, stay at Stanford. You'll have an amazing portfolio to work with, you know, a portfolio that's going to be hard to match at any other institution, right? But if you're interested in more of the management side of things, this is a real opportunity to build a program. And, you know, what you're going to have to really think about is, are, are you going to have the resources are you going to have those resources to be able to build it the way you want, right? And and can you see that growth happening? And and so that was one of the you know early conversations I had with you know the um, my manager at the time that was hiring me is is where we see this program going. What direction do they want to go? Do we see the growth potential? Um, and it was really to build out a reunion giving program that was going to be effective and and kind of use some of the practices, the best practices that we've developed at Stanford and then figure out how those, how to shape those so they're unique to the Santa Clara culture. Cause it's, you can't just replicate things from school to school. You have to figure out how to replicate it in what, and, and how it's unique and how to make it unique in that new environment. Um, and we were able to do that. And I think I hit, I just was fortunate in my timing that coming to Santa Clara, we were, we'd come off a campaign a couple of years prior. We were, you know, in this kind of steady state, but really looking to grow the base, grow our engagement with our alums and, and really build a reunion giving program that could sustain giving and kind of build a new platform. We'd also come off, you know, uh, you know, we'd been on a 15 year decline in alumni participation. Um, and so we were looking at how do we start to reverse that downward trend in alumni participation and, um, you know, 
a lot of it was just talking about it, right? No one, everyone was afraid to talk about why our rates were declining. And, you know, it was kind of, no one wants to market, you know, where they're, where they're not succeeding. But if, if you want to get alumni passionate about something, you have to talk about your strengths and your weaknesses. And, and a lot of times they're going to look, get on board to kind of help turn things around. So uh, we were fortunate and able to do that, put together some best practices, start to build a program in reunion giving. Um, and we, you know, raised our alumni participation rate up from a low of, you know, 15% in 2009 up to 25% in 2013. Um, that was a special year where we had an alumni challenge, alumni participation challenge. But then we kind of settled back into that steady state right in that, you know, 20 to 22% range and uh, for about 10 years or so until the pandemic hit. And, and, and to be honest, you know, because of the pandemic, we've seen our alumni participation um, fall pretty steeply. Um, but I'm hopeful as we come out of this and we are able yeah. to put more resources behind this, we'll, we'll get that back up into that, you know, 20, 25% range. There aren't too many institutions that have, uh, during that same time period, let's just take the pandemic aside, but from let's call it 2010 to, you know, early 2020, to grow uh, alumni participation. Oftentimes folks will cite larger class sizes and other things along uh, those lines, but um, it sounds like you're able to, in spite of class sizes, raise the absolute uh, participation rate. And then I'm sure the donor count, um, you, you know, even more significantly assuming uh, uh, larger class sizes. And so are there any generalizable themes for somebody that's listening right now sitting at 10 or 15% participation, but hoping by 2030 to get to the low 20s that you feel like, look, it needs to be personalized to every institution, but here are just the common themes or the common strategies that are gonna be critical if you're gonna reverse the decline. Yeah. Um, I think one of the key things is really education. One of the first new positions that I that I established when I came over as the Santa Clara Fund director was to create a young alum, a student and young alum engagement person. We, we had students graduating from Santa Clara that were getting scholarships that were benefiting from alumni support and they didn't quite understand that, right? You can't have that if you wanna uh, maintain alumni participation. You know, with growing denominators with larger class sizes now than you know, 50 years ago, uh, you have, if you want to increase alumni participation, you have to inspire younger alums to give. And, and it has to be that message of importance of giving and letting them know that gifts of any size make a difference. You know, one of my favorite stories is, you know, one of our trustees at Santa Clara, who's, who's been a very generous donor, her first gift to Santa Clara was a $25 gift during her senior gift campaign. You know, she didn't know at some point she was going to be making a million dollar gifts to the university down the line, but she knew that Santa Clara was important and she knew how she had benefited from the support of others. And so you need to make sure that you take time to educate your students, you know, make sure that your stewardship team is working with students that are scholarship recipients so that they really understand the value of what that, that where that money came from. They just can't think of it as financial aid. They have to think of it as this was someone that that uh, was an alum or a donor of the university that is looking to help them progress their education and move forward. And so that education part is essential. Now, I think, you know, to be honest, uh, Brent, I, I think we're in a new time period, right? I think 
coming out of this pandemic, um, you know, things are, are really changing and we need to be so much more strategic. I, I just think, you know, we've had the end of our fiscal year, we've had a number of emails that, you know, went out and, and you know, one email didn't, you know, went out to 20,000 people at a 20% open rate and didn't even get one gift. So we really have to think about our messaging. And I think it's really about personalizing the messages, finding those segments uh, of what that message is going to appeal to people. And I think we really need to, I mean, the theme is really leverage technology to do this in a much more efficient manner. It, it, things have to change because people's attention span has changed so much um, that people, even if they open an email, they might not be reading it or, you know, they're not making that decision. And then I, you know, for a lot of people that love going to, you know, love their alma maters, I don't think it's really always a question of whether they should make a gift or not. I think it's, okay, when am I going to pull that trigger? What's going to make me pull that trigger? And that's yeah. as development professionals, if we're focused on increasing alumni participation, or if we, if we care about that, which some might argue, maybe that's not as important anymore. Um, we got to figure out what's going to be that trigger point that, that makes someone make the difference and, and, and take out their credit card or plug that in. Yeah. And I think it really comes down to, it's going to come down to this personalization approach. Yeah. That's, that's, an, that sets messages apart nowadays. You know, we feel strongly about that. And I appreciate you sharing openly the 20,000 emails, 20% open rate, 0% conversion. And I think we have gone through this phase over the last 10 years of marketing automation and marketing journeys and nurturing campaigns and various technologies that allow that. But I think the issue is they allow all companies to do that. And so the way that our inboxes look in 2021 is radically different than the way they looked in 2011. And if there was a short-term arbitrage opportunity for, uh, you know, annual funds to leverage some of that, you know, mass marketing, you know, digital marketing, it feels like that window is closing because it's just, there's just too much noise and other brands are spending too much. And, um, and, and at the same time, I think that we're going to enter this phase in the 2020s, largely accelerated by the pandemic, where we're actually going to get back to basics where things might look a lot more like they did at Stanford in 2002, when you really had um, class campaigns rooted in human to human engagement. And, um, and, and having coordination at the annual fund level, I think a lot of that we can do with technology and be far more efficient than I'm sure uh, you were able to be just given the, the time, you know, the technology available in 2002. Um, but, but I think that there's a, a greater need for human to human engagement than ever before. I don't think we can text message our way to annual fund growth. I don't think we can have a better subject line that turns around the annual fund. I think we've got to find ways to scale relationships. And I think given that there's been a once in a generation shift in technology adoption and that every donor from the ages of 17 to 97 now knows what Zoom is, I think that that's gonna be a huge advantage for us coming out of this. Yeah, for sure. I, I, it's. You know, and the way video has adapted as well, just, you know, people are expecting everything to be personalized. And if they get any sniff that it's not personalized, um, I think it just goes straight into the trash, you know. I think, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, at the same time, when 
real personalization happens, I think it stands out now more than ever. Um, and I even think about, you know, with our sales organization, we, you know, we talk constantly, like before you hit send on that email, read it and ask yourself, would I enjoy receiving the email I'm about to send? And if the answer is no, then don't send it. And I think that there are good examples in the commercial world of, of what a great sales experience or a great buyer experience is, and also what a, what a really poor one could be. And I, I think that there's uh, so much potential here in this space. And I know that you've seen um, the opportunity over the last year, um, or you've seen that potential realized by doing some interesting campaigns that uh, align with mission and priorities at Santa Clara that have allowed you to um, activate uh, more philanthropic potential. And, and I know that one example uh, you're excited about is the work with your Black Excellence Fund. And I think that both at an aggregate mission, interest-based fundraising, there are some interesting lessons to learn, but also even at the individual donor level, the before and after experience that you've seen by tapping into um, somebody's real passions is, um, is a good reminder for everyone. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, it's, I, I always feel like my job at the university is to figure out what someone's passion is and then connect it to a university priority. You know, sometimes their passion might not align with a university priority and we're not making headway. Um, but when you can do that, it's a win-win, both for the donor and for the university. Um, and the hard part is to figure that out. And, you know, that's what great major gift work is all about, you know, having those conversations, spending that time. But the, the question is, how do you do it on a mass scale, right? How do you, how do you engage more people? Um, but you have to figure out what some of those trends are um, and you have to figure out what motivates people. And, and, you know, I'm a firm believer, you know, I certainly am a firm believer of the value of the annual fund and the importance that that has in the lifeblood of a university. But if that's the only way you're marketing to people, you're missing out, you know? And I, I think if that's the first way you're marketing to people, sometimes you're missing out as well. Um, I'm much, uh, if I feel like I can get someone hooked on giving to the university, eventually they will give to the annual funds as they see the, see the needs of that and, and the instance, uh, and, and how it can make a difference, but you got to get creative. You got to find those funds that are then, uh, to resonate with people. And, you know, over this last year, you know, I spearheaded a committee on campus to establish a fund in honor of black students at Santa Clara scholarship fund to help us better recruit and retain and ensure the success of our black students at Santa Clara. Um, you know, we started off with a conversation of what do we name this, right? It was North central university kind of challenged people as they had the funeral service for George Floyd. And they announced that they were, you know, having the, you know, establishing the George Floyd Memorial scholarship. So we looked at that at Santa Clara and said, what do we want to call this? What do we want to, you know, what do we want this to look like? What effect do we want it to have? Um, and, you know, this committee looked at it and in the end we said, well, we can name it after one person or another, but this has to be a fund that's easily marketable, that people know what they're giving to when they support it. And, and that it's then, a, you know, whether that is now or in a hundred years from now, right? We certainly expect that Santa Clara will be around a hundred years plus from now. and We'll still be raising money for the Black Excellence Scholarship Fund. So we didn't want to have to tell the story of, of who George Floyd was and how that resonates in this scholarship. Or if we were then to name it after, you know, the first Black student that graduated from Santa Clara in the 1950s, right? 
um, there, that was going to take a little bit out of the marketing of it. So that's why we went with the more generic name. Um, and then we thought there was such a outcry of support around Black Lives Matter at Santa Clara, right around, you know, the George Floyd incident. We actually sold, we, we put together this fund and we marketed it internally. And we thought that that would give us credibility as, you know, before we went to our alumni base, we raised $40,000 from faculty and staff members across the university. Um, and then we launched it publicly and, you know, went out to our alumni constituents. And um, it's pretty exciting to see the, the effects that it's had. It's, it's raised over 650 gifts in its first year. You know, it's about $525,000 raised for this endowment. Um, we have the first student getting awarded from the endowment. Uh, this that will start this academic year. Um, we actually we have it for a transfer student this first year, um, and I'm giving him a tour of, of Santa Clara tomorrow. So, you know, and this scholarship, when he initially received his financial aid package, he didn't think Santa Clara was feasible and he ruled it out as an option. But with this scholarship, which is a gap scholarship, was able to help yield him to come to Santa Clara. And, you know, he's so thrilled to be able to have this opportunity now. So it's making a real difference. But it's amazing to see people people that have given to the scholarship have come out of the woodworks. We've, we've seen $10,000 gifts from people that we've, that have never given more than $500 before we've um, and certainly there's people that this scholarship doesn't resonate with, right. There were, we had some alums that, you know, that, that weren't inspired by the scholarship and that's okay too. We just have to figure out what their passion is. Um, and so that's, that's what our job is as, as, as development officers. Can I ask you a question? First of all, thank you for sharing. And when you talk about the importance of education uh, and that being an important part of the growing participation, especially if you're going to target younger alumni with growing class sizes, I feel like the way that stewardship works today, you know, now you've got this Black Excellence Fund, you've got a couple of students who are going to be beneficiaries. I'm sure you're already thinking about how do we tell their story, right? How do we track their journey? And then how do we communicate that back to those 650 donors so that they become hopefully perpetual or, or even larger donors to this fund? That would be my guess. Is that fair? Yeah, no, that's a great point. You know, what I'm talking about with the student when I'm giving him a tour tomorrow is, you know, convincing him to do a little video that we can say that like right. the scholarship made the difference for him. This is why totally. he's coming to Santa Clara. I mean, that's, that's going to resonate with our donors to that. They're just going to feel great about, you know, they actually enabled a student to come to Santa Clara who wasn't able to come because of this. So here's what I'm wondering is, is there an opportunity to flip that model that sort of tried and true stewardship model? And the more that we can make it personalized versus mass marketing, the better, but applying the same approach in reverse from an education perspective. Like nobody's ever asked me, you know, I made my donations to, to Brown and Harvard yesterday, and I know that they go to the fund and it's the best use. Um, nobody's ever said, hey, would you make a, like, could you make a video and address it to Mike, the student, because Mike's going to be a beneficiary, maybe not directly, but he's going to be a beneficiary of your donation. Would you be willing to make a video telling Mike, the student who's a junior about why you gave and introducing yourself? Like, what if we ask donors to not only cut the check, but also cut the 30 second video 
and came up with a way to distribute that to the students who are beneficiaries in pursuit of that customer education. I feel like we're constantly saying, students, we need you to thank the donors. I don't know if we ever have donors explain to the students why they just made this donation. Um, have you heard of anything like that? Am I on the right track? Because it seems like that's the sort of thing that via technology isn't out of the question. And in the past, it might have happened at a scholarship banquet that people who live within 30 minutes of the institution might have attended. But what about a global alumni population? Yeah, Brent, I, I love that idea and seeing how we can maybe roll that out on a mass scale, right? We've, we've done similar types of things like that on the major gift side of things, right? We've had scholarship donors. I've set up in this past year, Zoom calls with you know, scholarship donors who have established an endowed scholarship with their recipients so that they get to tell the story of what inspired them to establish that scholarship. Then they get to meet the student and hear the impact. And it's, it's this love fest, right? Yeah. Um, and even through Zoom, it's become, you know, it still is a love fest. We had our scholarship luncheon online this past year. And usually that's a luncheon on campus, but it was just as successful because we did some breakout rooms. We had donors with their recipients. Um, and, you know, there's this intimacy with Zoom that sometimes you get yeah. that you might not get at a larger event. And you can involve and engage people that don't live within 30 minutes or an hour of campus. Um, and as we all become, you know, much more, you know, national and global universities, we need to think about how are we engaging our alums across the country who you don't live, who can't make it to campus that easily. Yeah. Um, but I do love, and that's always this idea of how do we, how do we get this on a mass side and, 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 and employ it on the annual fund side of things. But, you know, we could do something like that, encourage yeah. the donor to make their gift, but also tell their story. And right. for students to well, hear that is so important um, because that's only going to help that education for them to become that lifelong do donor as well. Yeah, I mean, I think even, look, it's, it's July 1st, right? A lot of people just renewed or made their first gift in the last 30 days. Um, you could almost imagine, even if it were just a compilation uh, of donors explaining like, hey, here's why I supported you. Uh, and, you know, I wish you nothing but the best on your student journey. And, and just as a way to kind of, you know, support education and personalization, but also let students know that, um, you know, it's real people out there, right? When we announce these donor totals and the big revenue numbers, it's really the Brents and the Mikes and all of our other, you know, fellow donors that are, that are real people, um, who used to be students, you know, in, in, in the same, uh, in the same location as you are. So I don't know, I feel like that's, that's an angle where there's so much innovation happening around stewardship. I mean, I think even like you just said, being able to create the zoom experience and connect people who otherwise couldn't be connected, probably in a better, you know, less noisy, like more comfortable environment than a dinner. Um, not to mention how much more trackable some of that becomes, uh, maybe we can start to apply the same approaches um, from donor to student. Um, so more to come. Who knows? Maybe a year from now, that's a campaign we're launching, Mike. All right. I love it. I love it. All right. Um, well, you've mentioned mentorship several times, and this is a tight knit uh, industry. And obviously, uh, maybe it's not obvious, but so many of our guests on the podcast have cited the importance of mentorship. Who are some of the people who stand out um, to you specifically and um, what have you taken away from, from them as your mentors? 
Yeah. You know, a, a few stand out in my early career at, at Stanford for sure. Um, uh, John Denny, who's the head of development now and Martin Shell, um, just amazing individuals. And I think one of the great things about them is, you know, they didn't care what level position you were in, right? They weren't hierarchical at, in, in any way. And they were at a huge org- development organization, right? This wasn't a small shop. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I look back at that experience and I knew that they knew what they wanted, what was best for me as an individual. Did, can, can I ask how you felt that? I, I, we just uh, published an episode with Amy Noah, who's the new uh, head of the foundation at the University of Oklahoma. And she specifically said, this can be a pretty hierarchical sector. What was it about uh, Martin and, and John's leadership that made it feel not that way? Yeah. You know, what John, I think a great example of is you know, is that conversation I had with him about, you know, the opportunity of Santa Clara to, you know, go from a class giving officer to really start a reunion giving program and be the head of the annual fund at Santa Clara. And just say, you know, Mike, if this is what you want to do, have these candid conversations about your own career progression, then you should really take this opportunity. And, you know, he said it. at one point, though, he's like, I'm going to recruit you back. And, you know, to be honest, that was one of the hardest decisions I had to make and, and say no to is when he did come back and recruit me back. And, and I, you know, I had the opportunity to, to you know, have an opportunity to grow my, uh, you know, experience at Santa Clara versus go back to Stanford, which is always where I thought I was going to go when I first came over. Um, and so that's, it's, it's, you know, that type, I think we all need to think of people as individuals and how we grow them. Um, but also it's just the personal, the personalness, you know, I, it's the funniest story, but like, I felt like, you know, whenever in the afternoon I'd go to the bathroom at Stanford, I was always running into Martin shelf and I'm like, gosh, guys, you know, I'd tell my colleagues, this is so weird. Like we're on the same bathroom schedule. Um, but it's just that chit chat that you might have in the hallway, the chit chat you have, you know, in the bathroom that, that, that goes to show that like, gosh, Martin cares about, you know, a class giving officer uh, working, you know, as much as he does his principal gift officer. Right. Um, And I think great leaders show that, um, you know, and I, I remember having a conversation with Martin when he came, when he was encouraging, when, when John and Martin were encouraging me to come back to Stanford. And he said, he said, um, you know, Martin was saying, you know, Mike, I always, I always try to make sure that, you know, when I, that I hire smart people and put them in the room and empower them. I want to be, I want to be the least intelligent person in that room. Um, and that's how I know I'm, I'm set up, setting up a successful room. And, and just, you know, to hear him say that, you know, someone who had, has, a, has had as much success as he had, um, you know, to realize that, hey, he doesn't need to be the smartest person in the room to run a successful organization. You know, I think that goes a long ways. Uh, and then to be able to have that conversation with someone in the hallway who, who, you know, you might not think of taking that extra minute out of your day, but great managers find a way to do that, I think. I love it. Well said. And I actually think as much as I am an advocate for remote work, and I think it's going to transform our work at Evertrue, I think it's going to transform the advancement sector over time. It is those hallway uh, conversations and Maybe it's the pep talks or that sort of additional perspective you were able to gather that I don't think we've figured out how to um, replicate yet in, in this remote context. And that's something I'm 
I'm thinking a lot about just even in my own leadership style. I, I'm curious as you um, uh, think about fiscal year 22 uh, kicking off today uh, relative to this sort of remote by, uh, uh, not by choice, but we just had, we had to be remote. What is the future of remote at Santa Clara broadly or at the advancement uh, organization specifically, or, or is it too early to say? We're actually putting a lot of thought into what that looks like, right? We've done some, we've surveyed our, you know, members of university advancement. We've gotten a sense of what people want. We're, we're trying to think about how do we create that balance, right? We all, you know, there's something that's really important as you put new fundraisers together. Um, you know, I was, I've never been a big fan of putting people, fundraisers in their own offices. I think people really learn in bullpens. Um, they need to listen to that conversation across the cube and listen to how someone is interacting with a donor, even though they might just be hearing one side of the conversation. That little interaction goes a long way, especially for, for newer fundraisers. And you can, there's so much collective learning that happens. So I'm a big fan of making sure that happens, but I think there's a lot of opportunity. And we've, you know, a lot of people have shown over this past year that we can be successful working remotely as well. So how do we have that balance? Um, so I think, you know, as we think about, we're still kind of refining what that will look like. I imagine we'll start blending back into the office in August, September, really take the fall quarter to really try out a number of different things. Um, but I imagine that there will be some of that balance. Um, so there will be an ability to maybe work remotely, you know, one or two times a week, but, and really find some times to think about when we're together. And I think the key will be is doing the work that you're most successful at in that type of mode, right? So we all need those times when we're focused and we're quiet, and that's the best type of work to do when we're working remotely. And then we need that type of time when we're working more collaboratively and we need to you know, schedule that type of work to do when we're working together as well. What are you excited about uh, over the next year besides your RV trip in the next week? <laughs> you know, I think it's, I was just talking with my annual giving team is, is how are we going to do this? How are we going to turn these numbers around? We actually had a decent year fundraising totals. We had some larger gifts, but as I said, our, our alumni participation, you know, probably will hit an all time low knowing, especially that, you know, we, we were down, you know, uh, probably 25% of our staff uh, because positions were frozen. We were, you know, we didn't operate our student call center this past year because we weren't able to employ student callers. So um, there's a lot of donors that have given to Santa Clara that haven't been engaged in, in, a, in a more personal way. And we're really trying to think about how can we do that uh, in a much more meaningful way? How do, can we personalize video to them? How can we personalize some of the interactions? How do we, how do we create a cadence uh, of communications that breaks through the fray that's out there, right? There's just, we need to break through the distraction rate that everyone has and get people, get our alums to know that like, we care what they think about, right? We, we want, we don't want them to just give to, you know, a specific fund at Santa Clara. We want to find what their passion is and get them to passionately support that at Santa Clara. So I think that, you know, I'm excited looking at this next year of how we're going to use this, how do we then uh, integrate some new technology? How are we, we're going to be reinstituting some text to giving some video, some, you know, a number of different ways about, 
But I think, you know, the tried and true email large populations, you know, even if you're merging in someone's salutation, that's not going to work anymore, right? We got to figure out a new plan. And I think that's what excites me is, is, is coming up with those new solutions, those aha moments uh, that we're going to find success in this next year. Some things are going to fail, yeah. but some things are going to really work. Um, and when you hit on those things that work, it makes it all, all that much more rewarding. Yeah, I think you've got to be in the primary inbox, not the marketing tab. I think it's got to be truly personalized, not pretend personalized. And I think, um, you know, mail mergers are not going to be the the panacea that maybe folks thought uh, at one point. Um, you mentioned the challenges around budget cutbacks, freezes, and so forth. Is that starting to thaw? Um, are there going to be opportunities if there are folks listening and thinking about their next step to consider uh, opportunities at Santa Clara? Yeah, for sure. We're, we're just gotten some approvals to hire some, start to hire some positions back. So we're looking strategically on that. I think, you know, it's never easy to hire great development talent. There's not enough of it out there. Um, we have to think about how we grow that internally. Um, I think as we also look at the DEI lens, um, we need to do a better job of, of promoting uh, opportunities of working in university of advancement with our students at Santa Clara, right? Or our students at whatever university we're at. You know, let's go talk to those, those black student chapters and encourage them right. to say, hey, have you ever thought of this? When I was a student, I didn't know what development was. I mean, I didn't know what, that, what, what this was all about. I, I did hear one of my friends worked in a call center. I was like, oh, that's interesting. They, they call alums, ask them for money. Um, so, you know, people tend not to, you know, people tend to fall into development, right? It's not a, right. a, a chosen career path. It's, it's starting to become that as more and more as, as this field professionalizes over time and more and more people are interested in it. But we got to do a better job of marketing that. And I think we can yeah. certainly do a better job of marketing the great opportunities that are here working at a college campus to, to some of our students from diverse backgrounds. And I think that's yeah. the difference. I think that's a great point, and especially as you have programs like the Black Excellence Fund, how do you create the full cycle opportunity, which is we're going to uh, support more students of color, Black students joining the university, succeeding at the university, but also we're going to go out of our way to make sure that that, that population understands what an entry-level development assistant role, exactly like the one you had in 2002, is like today. And I think it's one thing if... Um, you know, you and your peers in the, in the advancement sector are having those conversations with pockets of diverse students and getting rejected uh, in that there is not a mutual interest. It's another thing if we're not having those conversations. And it's hard for any company, right? I, I think that the awareness around DEI and, and uh, really being intentional about diversity is, is uh, obviously more top of mind, I think, than ever before. We don't have an inherent uh, talent pool and, and student population the way that all of our advancement partners do. And so that's the big question is just, are we trying to recruit diverse students and failing or have we not really tried? And if we haven't really tried, what could we do to get intentional about that? And it sounds like that's top of mind for you. Yeah, I, 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 you know, we have people that love this university. They've already been sold on how great this university is. Um, we just need to sell them on this as a career path, right? And, totally. 
um, you can be successful in this career path. And the great thing about this career path is once you get experience, there's, you know, there's a whole lot of opportunity. There's, you know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't get, you know, some type of recruiter reaching out about this position or that position in my email or phone. Um, and, you know, I'd be foolish to think that that doesn't happen with all of my staff as well. So I know that oh, that yeah. happens. And what we need to do is we need to find that we hire the right people that care yeah. about this university and know what's unique about this university. And, and those are the people that are going to stay here, right? I've been here 13 and a half years. Um, and I've been here not because there hasn't been other opportunities. I've been here because I know what's special about this university. And I feel that we can continue to make a difference. Uh, and those are the types of people that eventually, you know, we want to hire and, and encourage to come and work at Santa Clara. All right. So you don't have to name names, but when you think about the best development professionals that you've worked with over the years, what are some of the traits or characteristics or words that come to mind to describe those people relative to, to middle or below performers? Brent, you're stealing one of my uh, interview questions. You know, boom, then you yeah. should be ready to go. Here we go. Yeah, surprising. So my, my interview question is, especially when I'm talking to someone that has some development experience is, you know, what's the difference? What do you think makes the difference between a good fundraiser and a great fundraiser? Um, you know, if it's about building relationships, that's not even a good fundraiser, right? So um, I think some of those great fundraisers that I've worked with, that I've had, you know, that I enjoy seeing, um, you know, do their work day in and day out. It's, it's really the strategic aspect that they bring into this. Really, they're, they're great listeners. They're thinking about what, they're listening for those keywords. They're listening to what inspires someone. And then they can help develop those opportunities and connect them into those opportunities at Santa Clara. And I think that's where you start to see transformational gifts happen. Um, you know, those transformational gifts don't usually happen with the annual fund, right? You're not just selling the annual fund. It's, it's, you know, you're have you're finding that person's passion and finding a way to unfold that passion, um, so that it can make a huge impact at the university. And so I think that's ultimately one of the most important, um, aspects of a great fundraiser is that ability to think, you know, to listen well and think strategically. I think I might rephrase my question and borrow your interview question from now on in future episodes. All right. I love it. All right. Well, Hey, we need to wrap up here. If folks want to get in touch with you, I know you're on LinkedIn. Is that the right uh, channel or uh, is there a better way to, to get in touch? Yeah, you can reach me on LinkedIn or, you know, you can go to Santa Clara university's development page. If you go to seu.edu slash giving and, and click on the contact page, you can click through to me there, but Brent, it's, it's been a pleasure, uh, you know, taking time, you know, I, I love working with you and I always think, uh, you know, what I love about Evertrue is always thinking, they're thinking ahead. Uh, um, and so it's been a pleasure to, to be a partner with you over these years and, and, and I'm looking forward to how that partnership continues in the future. Thanks, Mike. We appreciate it. There's so much to do, right? I mean, I think we've made good progress in the last few years, but we haven't solved the problem yet. And I, I think that's what gets me fired up and keeps my team really engaged is it feels like reversing some of these declines or really blending automation without sacrificing personalization. This is all doable. We're not quite there yet. Um, 
but we couldn't figure it out without great partners like you and your colleagues. So um, thank you for, uh, for your support on the journey. And I would just encourage anybody listening, reach out to Mike, don't be shy, super thoughtful, uh, just a, a really genuinely nice uh, person that you should all get to know. Uh, and with that, I am going to wish Mike and his family the absolute best travels on their RV adventure. Uh, Brent, signing off from the home office in McGregor, Iowa, where we have electricity, running water, and all the trappings of modern civilization. Take care. Take care, Brent.